Well, hey, friend, welcome to Job with Julie. This is a listener-supported podcast and an outreach of authentic intimacy, a ministry dedicated to reclaiming God's design for sexuality. And my name is Julie Slattery. So have you ever found yourself having a strange emotional or physical reaction to something that's just kind of ordinary? Have you had times where you've wondered why you feel the way you do about an issue or situation in your life? Well, this was the case for my guest today. She's an author, speaker, and radio show host named Susie Larson. Susie has experienced a lot of trauma, abuse at the hands of a doctor who was supposed to be caring for her, Lyme's disease, anxiety, and strange chronic health issues, with each of these events individually leaving its mark on her body, her soul, and her mind. As Susie continued through adulthood, she was surprised to discover that despite her thriving career in ministry, there were parts of her past traumas that she experienced that had been hidden away or unaddressed, and these traumas were starting to wreak havoc on her body and emotions. In this special edition bonus episode, Susie shares about how, as embodied souls, what we experience in our souls, we also begin to experience in ourselves. They show up in our bodies. Let's head to the coffee shop for my conversation with Susie about how important it is to address our trauma in order to move forward. And just a heads up, Susie will share about an experience of sexual assault that she had during our conversation. So for as long as I've known you, health has been an issue for you. Um, I remember you telling me stories about Lyme's disease and how that really wrecked you as a young mom, as a young wife. And then it seems like illnesses have continued to come back and that's, that hasn't changed. You know, that's, um, that's a loaded question and it is true. You know, in the early years as a mom, I did contract Lyme disease and was ravaged by that disease. And there were times as a young mom, I remember literally wrapping my arms around my hubby, begging him not to go to work and I'd say, is this, what if this is a day that I die? What mm-hmm. if this is a day you come home and there are three little boys playing? And I'm, you know, and it wasn't a manipulative question, just that it was such an unpredictable disease. And it just would, you know, you never knew what was going to happen with symptoms. Mm-hmm. And, and it stirred up a lot of fear. So those early years were very um, painful, hard to look at. And then I, I got treatment, had IV therapy and different things. And I got through the worst of it. But I would say for the last 20 years, I've had some chronic health issues. But I've always just intended to, to work around them and work within my limits, if you know what I mean. I've also in the fitness, you know, industry for 15 years, so I'm very health-minded. And I knew what I had to do so that I could do the most within my lane. But if I never, if I ever disobeyed my limits, my uh, reaction would be more drastic than most people. So I, I went on and taught aerobic classes for years. But if I didn't get sleep, my face would go numb. I think I would get dizzy. My, everything would start to hurt. So I would have these like drastic consequences to the slightest deviations. And mm-hmm. But I got to tell you, Julie, God used that because I'm a driver and a doer and I quite sure, you know, I would have been one who wandered in my own strength. You know, when you hear the song, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave this God I love. My wandering wouldn't have been into rebellious sin, would have been to self-serving, striving. I know God didn't give me the disease or the weakness, but the weakness He really used to cultivate a heart of dependence. So I would say, even though it has been a struggle and I've had to be so careful, 
I've done a lot of living within my limits because I learned to within my limits to say, God, well, you're you're the God with no limits, so do the impossible in it through me. But it's always was something I had to contend for, fight for. And for every three days in a row, I'd feel good. I'd have five days in a row that I didn't feel well at all. Yeah. And I always marveled at people who just had their health. That was the case up until about three years ago. I had a really horrible health relapse and it was devastating on many levels for me. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, the thing that's even more difficult about Lyme's disease and some of the struggles that you've had recently, they're not really known illnesses. You know, when you tell somebody that you have cancer uh, or Parkinson's disease, there's a lot of understanding. But when you talk about autoimmune diseases, Lyme's disease, you know, chronic fatigue syndrome, some of these things, people kind of roll their eyes and they're like, come on, really, you can do this. You know, you're overreacting. Did you get that kind of response? Oh, my word. And especially if you look healthy, if you look, yes. you know. And you look extremely healthy. Well, you know, I'm telling you, there are plenty who have chronic health issues. And there's some who have been given diagnoses that are they're not even scientific, basically. They're saying doctors are looking at symptoms and go, you seem to fall under this umbrella. Right. And they're especially the ones that are dissed by people because it's not a for sure, yep, it showed up in the blood. Where Lyme disease back then, I mean, nobody knew anything about it, but it did show up in the blood. It was a true definitive diagnosis. Now mm -hmm. people know a lot about it. Well, at first with this relapse, I was thinking for sure it was Lyme because it was acting so much like that. A lot of neurological issues, but the neurological fireworks in my body kind of went to a new level. A lot of inflammatory responses in my brain and my body, like you wouldn't believe. It was horrific. So there was moments where I'm thinking, this is Lyme or this isn't? Well, wouldn't you know, it's once again an illness that 10 years from now, people are going to go, oh, I know all about that. Yeah. What I was ended up being diagnosed as a chronic inflammatory response syndrome, SIRS, C-I-R-S. And it is often people get this who've had Lyme and who've been exposed to mold. And I had major mold toxicity in my body. And I just, without getting into too many uh, details, a fourth of the population has a mold deficient gene. So a fourth of the population can't process the mold that's in 50% of the buildings nowadays. Mm -hmm. So let's say you were to walk in a building with mold. You, If you did that every day, you might feel achy, tired, sneezy, whatever, and think I'm getting a cold. And then when you don't return, your body works it out and you don't even know the difference. But a person like me, that stuff gets in me and my body doesn't know how to get rid of it. So it attacks my neurology. So, you know, this for me culminated one day in my bathroom. I knew things were amping up and my health was just before my eyes just imploding again. And I remember my, not only was my face going numb, my neck was numb. I was having esophageal spasm, so I couldn't swallow. My arms went numb. I felt like somebody put a vice on my head and kept cranking it to the point where I felt like in that bathroom that day that my skull was broken. The pain, bone crushing headaches is the only way I know how to explain it. Dizziness. And then what apparently was happening because the inflammatory response was so significant, it pushes your serotonin down, which pushes involuntary anxiety up. And mm -hmm. so you have these involuntary surges that almost feel like panic attacks. I mean, just surges of anxiety. Yeah. I'm in my bathroom going, I cannot believe you're asking me to do this again. No, God, no. And I'm begging him, please don't make me go around this mountain again. I mean, I'm here at this age. My kids are grown, really, you know. Yeah. I'm crying out to God, begging him, anything but this, Lord. And uh, I am fear was very big at that moment. And I remember hearing just the whisper of the Lord in my heart, the storms reveal the lies we believe and the truths we need. And I'm just, if you could picture the chaos in my body, and I think even in the spiritual realm, there was a massive spiritual battle because I had so much fear and anxiety in the moment. And I'm like, what? 
The storms reveal the lies we believe and the truths we need. I thought, well, what's the lie that I believe? Mm-hmm. And I just, that moment, the enemy rails in my ear. I can get to you anytime, anywhere, and God will never stop me. Mm-hmm. Well, Julie, I picked up that lie when, as a child when I experienced trauma at the hands of some teenage boys. And it went in, and I didn't know what to do with it. I was a child, so I stuffed it down. And then, you know, I contract Lyme disease. I literally was on bed rest for six months of that pregnancy. It was up one day when the doctor said, you can get up and test the waters. I was up one day, met some girlfriends from college, went for a walk. I was very careful. I was about six months along. Had to go back to bed that night because I was contracting. Two weeks from that outing, my face started to go numb. Well, I had three months left of that pregnancy. It was a year later that we found out. First, they thought MS or a brain tumor. A year later, we find out it's Lyme. So my one day up, the deer tick latched on, deposited its bacteria. You're kidding. I never saw the deer tick, but two weeks from that outing. But the day that I found that, I hear it in my ear again. I can get to you anytime, anywhere, and God will never stop me. So it had been confirmed true, even though it was a lie. And so I'm in the bathroom that day, and that when I heard it in my ear again, the storms reveal the lies we believe and the truths we need. And I hear I can get to you anytime. I, then the Lord just came back so strong. That's a lie. We don't outrun lies. We turn around and we face them and we put them under our feet. You've been believing that subconsciously your whole life, but it is not true that he has open access. He's on a short leash. You can't know what I've prevented in your life. You can't know what I've provided. But right now we're going to turn around and face him because it feels like he has you by the throat but pretty soon you're going to have him under your feet. And I'm not going to let you lose, but I have to let you fight. And I knew this was a D-Day battle for me for fear, for anxiety, fear of debilitating illness, but I also had an actual illness. You know, I had an MRI and 20 tubes of blood, and it was a scientific, once again, diagnosis. There it is in your blood on your MRI, and I had a battle. Yeah, let me just ask you, you're describing physical symptoms and physical ailments that are verifiable. But in your bathroom, this all of a sudden became a spiritual thing. Exactly. And so often we, th- we don't think about it like that. Like either you're battling with something spiritually and emotionally or you're battling with something physical. Uh, they don't interchange together. And I know that you really believe and have learned even more so through this recent bout that you cannot separate what's going on with our body with what's happening with our minds and what's happening with our soul. Well, even, you know, Harvard Medical School, you know, experts in the scientific field who have no faith to speak of will tell you that your emotions, your experiences, your body holds on to those and they affect your physiology. So one of the things I say throughout the book, Fully Alive, is what happens in your soul happens in your cells. And I will tell you, I believe that God allowed an overplayed enemy attack against me because he knew I was finally strong enough to face some of the trauma that was way down in my soul that I wasn't ready to face until then. I don't believe for a minute God caused this illness, but I do know that he allowed it because I had to look at how intricately entwined were some memories that I didn't know what to do with, so they just shoved them down deeper. And the storms revealed the lies I believed and the truths I needed. This just was true. In the journey, this Fully Alive book is the fruit of digging into going, this is the impact of fear on your cells and on your soul. This is the impact of insecurity, of selfishness, of, of shame. And we all have these nuances in our lives, depending on where we've been and what's happened to us, some to differing degrees. 
things. But what happens in your soul happens in your cells. And when Jesus says that he wants to restore your soul, when he says, I came to destroy the works of the enemy, he means it. And I know better than I've ever known before that this shalom that he has for us is a wholeness. It's a well-being. And we can no more compartmentalize who we are than you can separate the parts of the Trinity. We are body, mind, and spirit, and what happens in our soul matters. And that's why the Lord wants to go to those soul places and bring some healing. And I'll just say one more thing and then let you get a word in edgewise. But <laughs> I've got a friend who's a counselor, and she said she and her colleagues have women in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s coming in in droves right now who've had crazy symptoms, surges of anxiety, irrational fears, like hit them out of nowhere kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. They've gone to doctors who've not been able to find a definitive diagnosis, but then they realized when they went to counseling and they started to untangle some things, there were traumas, there were lies that they picked up when life let them down. And when these women get into the presence of God and, and he meets them in those places that they've put off healing from, little by little, Many of these women, their symptoms just go away. Mm -hmm. And and they'll even tell you, like with fibromyalgia, 100% of the time, yes, there's a chemical element, there's a physical element, but there's an emotional element. There is trauma involved. There is something that's intertwined in your story that God wants to heal and restore. All yeah. of that to say, it's worth going on this journey with God. He wants us well. Yeah. You mentioned kind of the link between and even your own life trauma and physical ailments. And, you know, we're seeing that more and more that people that have experienced significant childhood trauma, teenage trauma, they're more at risk for things like autoimmune diseases and, uh, you know, serious yep, lupus and just, I mean, even life-threatening illnesses. And why do you think it is, you said Harvard Medical School, you know, all these researchers are confirming that statement you made that what happens to our souls ends up in our cells. I don't know if I said it right, mm -hmm. but something like that. Mm -hmm. So why do we resist that? Why do we go to the doctor, get the medication, try to get rid of the symptoms without anybody ever telling us that healing might be more than just what we do with our body? That's a great question. We are in a, in a society addicted to treating symptoms. And I think there's times we don't want to do the work required because the, the pace of grace is slow. God is not in a hurry and the healing process is slow and it takes some work. And uh, I think it's scary. I think there's times too when you think if I face that, it'll swallow me whole. I'd rather just numb out. Now I want to just say there's a place, of course, for meds for different purposes. But that said, I believe we're way over medicated and we're way over treating symptoms without knowing the why, what's going on behind the scenes. And, you know, for me, I, you know, if this helps you to, if that example, my middle son, Luke, when he was young, he had a lot of respiratory issues, severe RSV and different things. And they had to put him on prednisone over and over again. And the doctor said, this is a harsh medicine. This will most likely stunt his growth and cause chronic fatigue when he's older, but he has to breathe. And, uh, well, he's six foot three and his size of shoe is 14. So he didn't, <laughs> that didn't affect his growth. But let me tell you, he's had major chronic fatigue and he's been drawn towards carbohydrates, a lot of sugars. He was on a lot of antibiotics as a young one. That does affect you. It puts a lot of yeast in your body and you crave sugars and it's this virtual cycle. Well, the doc that I was going to was getting such results for me. Uh, Luke said the most amazing thing to me. He said, Mom, he said, I feel exhausted all of the time. And he said, I thought it was my Christian duty to kind of feign a smile and just get through it. And he said, 
but it's not sustainable. And it got me nowhere. And I'm seeing other people with worse things than, than what I had get better. And so I decided to go to the doctor, to your doctor. And he realized he'd been eating way too much sugar, that he could really overcome chronic fatigue by some you know radical life choices. And he said, I realized I had this passive optimism that was getting me nowhere. Now think about that. Just sort of like putting on a smile, but it was passivity, not willing to do anything. He's like, I wanted the right things, but I wasn't willing to do the right things. But when he started to engage, he lost 30 pounds. He started to get all this energy back. Well, for me, God kept bringing me back to the story of the man on the mat who'd been sick for 38 years. And Jesus' first words to him were, do you want to be well? And he said, I can't, sir. And I'm telling you what, Julie, I actually had to tell the Lord, you're hurting my feelings. <laughs> you keep bringing me to this story. Of course I want to get well. I mean, I'm, I might not be certain things, but I am one thing is I'm very disciplined and very consistent. So I'm like, of course I want to be well. I go to bed on time. I drink 70 ounces of water. I take my supplements. I mean, I'm so careful, especially during the sickness. My doctors were saying, Nobody wants this like you do, because I'm like, I have stuff to do. I am not taking this laying down. So yeah, why do you keep bringing me back to this story? And he was silent. And so I thought, well, I better ask a better question. Are there I can'ts in me? Are there hindrances in my own soul to my healing? Because I'm doing a lot of the right things. What am I missing? About a week later, I'm ready to step out stage to speak. And I was having an inflammatory, it was horrendous, dizzy, fatigue, numb everywhere. And when you have these inflammatory responses, my brain doesn't work because I could feel the pressure in my head and I, I'm not firing on all cylinders. And I just want to go into bed, but I had a job to do. And I'm just about ready to step out on stage. And the host grabs me, pulls me back, and she goes, oh, when you go out there to tell them about your message, she goes, make sure you tell them about your health struggle. Otherwise, they're just going to hate you when they get a look at you. <laughs> and I stopped. Because I just have to say, because our audience can't see you, you're like cute as a button. Oh, my word. <laughs> you are. <laughs> you're so funny. It's just true. You're so funny. Thank you, honey. I'm getting older. I see the wrinkles. You're, but anyway. You're cute even getting older. Oh, you're so yeah. kind. Well, all that to say, when she said that, it was like a light bulb went on. I've heard that a thousand times. And the Lord whispered to my heart, can you handle it? Can you handle the judgments of women if I heal you? Can you handle, can you trust me with your reputation? And it stopped me in my tracks. Like, Julie, it was a thing. You know what I mean? The fact that that question was posed to me because— What was the question? Well, I mean, like— Okay, so she says, make sure you tell them about your health struggle, otherwise they're going to hate you. Yeah. I've heard that a thousand times. The Why? thing is, I've been on the receiving end of gossip and mm -hmm. petty cattiness, and it's so painful that every time I heard that— I didn't know what to do with it, so I shoved it down deep going, ah, I don't want people to hate me. So in, here I am backstage, and when the Lord posed the question, could you handle being well? Could you handle it if women ended up actually hating you, if you didn't struggle anymore? What if someone women just like you because you, you're just, sick all the time? Just because it was like people would be jealous of you. Yeah. Uh -huh. Can and you that handle? was sort of like a— It was a thing. Yeah. And I didn't know it. Uh -huh. I mean, it was embedded until I'd asked God to show me, and here it's right in my face— and when he said, can you handle, could you handle being well? Knowing some women might judge you or sum you up. or yeah. And it, it caught me in my tracks enough to know that's a thing. So I had to kind of do a momentary surrender before I stepped out. On the, and I thought, oh, my word. Okay, I'll trust you. But that was scary. So that mm -hmm. was the thing. Like a week later, I was praying for human trafficking victims, which I pray about every single day. And and the phrase blessing guilt came across my mind. I'm like, blessing guilt. Mm -hmm. And the Lord whispered in my heart again. Can you handle being well, knowing that there are 30 million slaves on the earth today? And I said, no, 
Mm -hmm. I didn't have to think about it. Capital no. So it was right there. And I know theologically in my brain, what God does for one doesn't diminish his ability to do for another. I know that, right? But my soul didn't know that. The, the injustice of me living in this country and having a fluffy pillow and food in the cupboard, so I battle. You know, how in the world would I live with myself to get the very thing I'm contending for, praying for, believing for, eating for, but really? So essentially what God was showing you was ways that you have— used your illness that has worked for you? No, I don't think that. I don't think that, not at all, because no. I detest it. I right. have detested it. I I don't want to talk about it really. I mean, when people ask me about it, but it's like, I, want, I don't want to be known for that. I want to be known for the fruit out of my life. No, what I think is like this blessing guilt was there's this core belief that it would feel too unjust to be healed when so many are suffering. Okay. And I had to deal with that because mm -hmm. I know in my head what he does for one doesn't limit his ability to do for another. So I once again had to surrender, Lord, I'm going to trust you that you're good to them as you're good to me. And that was a huge step of faith. And I say all that to say, I do believe that there are hindrances to our wholeness in our soul. Most of us, if not all of us, things you don't know are there, but the enemy knows they're there. And even your body knows they're there because they're holding on to things. So I'm just saying, I dare you to ask, if you've tried everything you know to be well, if, if you're the man on the mat and you've been more attached to the mat than, than the promises of God, your next steps might be to do what my son did, to say, I've been wanting the right things. I just haven't been willing to do anything about it. You might have to change your diet. You need to start going to bed on time. You might to take a look at your self-talk. You might want to spend more time in the Word. Whatever it is the Lord invites you to do, this goes back to your question, and it's such a long answer for a short question, but I think... People want to treat symptoms because they don't always want to participate in the healing process because it requires something of you. Mm -hmm. So for you, you maybe you've wanted the right things, but just maybe haven't done the things you need. And ask the Lord, what are those things you need? Or maybe you're like me, that you're feeling like all I've done is fight to be well. Maybe there are hindrances in your soul, core beliefs that you don't even know are there. But ask the Lord to show you. He'll bring those up. He'll bring those to the surface and show you. And you can contend for those so that there is more real estate in your soul for wholeness. There's more place in your soul to say, no, I believe you want me well. I think most Christians don't believe God cares about their wellness, you know, because you hear so much about, he doesn't care about your comfort. He cares about your character. Yeah. Well, it's true. He cares about your character, but he cares about your soul. He wants to restore your soul. He cares about the trauma. He cares about the lies you've picked up when life let you down. He cares about that. And this battle is where I had to really reckon with, do you want me well? Mm -hmm. Are you a father that wants me well? And this isn't to name it, claim it. This doesn't mean everybody gets miraculous healing. They don't. There are godly people who get sick and die. But I still think, can we err on the side of faith? You know, one of the one of the statements in the book over and over again is, let's pursue healing and pray for a miracle. Let's pursue healing. Now, maybe your healing isn't physical, but it might be emotional, might be mental, it might be relational, right? But pursue healing, position yourself like what do I need to do, Lord, to cooperate with you, to be on the path of your promise? And then you ask God, now would you do what only you can do? Do a miracle in me, Lord. Mm. I'm telling you, when you start to engage your faith that way, you start to see God move in ways you did not see coming. Yeah. Some people, as they're hearing you tell your story, and maybe they're identifying with their story, they're saying, she really hears from God. Like, God doesn't talk to me like that. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, he wouldn't say, he doesn't talk to me in the bathroom when I'm crying out to him. I wish he would. And I don't know how to hear his voice. I don't know how to know that that's God showing me what I need to address. Uh, what would you say to that person who wants that kind of direction from the Lord, but has never experienced mm. the surety of knowing that God's speaking? Well, for the record, there are seasons where he seems very quiet, but I'm old enough now to know that when he's quiet, he's still near, you know. But I think when you cultivate a life of listening and responding, you start to know what he sounds like. And uh, I, I read many, many years ago a story of A.W. Tozer, who was very curious about why, if God's no respecter of persons, why do some rise up from the fray and do so much more for the kingdom than others? If he's no respecter of persons, why the difference, right? And so he went on a hunt and kind of studied all these people through history, biblical history and just contemporary history. And he, what he found was the differences were as stark as the day is long. One was black, one was white, one was rich, one was poor. And uh, all he could find, the one common denominator, was what he called spiritual receptivity. He said they cultivated a lifestyle of listening to God. And when he spoke, they did something about it. I read that years and years ago as a young Christian, and I thought, I'm going to cultivate a lifestyle of listening. And I think one of the best ways to know His voice is to know His Word. I would say start there. Start reading the Word of God. Ask Him. And it's not just studying to know about God. It's studying to know Him, to, to know Him. Let me hear your voice. And Lord, let me hear it so I can obey. And I think when you shorten the distance between what God asks of you and what you do, if you can narrow down that time frame and obey as quickly as you hear— I don't know, that does something to your spiritual ears where you hear him with more clarity. And I just have walked with him a long time. I know what he sounds like. Doesn't mean like we have this, you know, full sentence and paragraph dialogue all the time. But when I need it, he's there. I mean, there were times in this battle, it was, it, I describe it as a walk through hell. I felt like the furies of hell were aimed at me. And I felt like he gave me breadcrumbs, just tiny, tiny little bits to feed on because it was a training time for me. But when I needed it and was desperate for it, he brought a truth that was enough, you know, like finding a meal and some still waters and just enough to get me on the next phase of the journey. But I don't think anything matters more than walking intimately with God and hearing his voice. So make that your highest aim. He loves to answer prayers like that. Mm -hmm. You talked about just a few years ago, being able to link this lie that Satan told you. It had to do with your physical health in the present time, but it went back to a time of trauma. Uh, I'm assuming sexual trauma. Uh, You were pursuing physical healing with the doctors, with medication, with diet, with rest. What did you do to unearth and release the shame and the fear that you were carrying from what happened to you? You know, it was so multi-layered for me. that I could not have done it if God wouldn't have unearthed it and brought it up a layer at a time. But I write about this, and this is the rawest chapter of this book, I believe, I think it's chapter four on shame. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was odd because I remember I opened the chapter, I think, where I'm having a conversation with my husband, and I'm like, why do I keep seeing myself on trial? Mm-hmm. I'm always on a trial stand. What is that about? Like in dreams? I'm just, it's like, no, it's like a screenshot in my brain. Okay. It's like if I cut the sandwich the wrong way, you know, (laughs) it's just like, it wouldn't take anything, but it would be like, if I was wrong or even perceived as wrong or thought I might be about to be wrong, I'd catch a picture of me on trial. Like I'm defending myself, like always guilty, Mm -hmm. you know, and my hubby is not 
the berating kind. So he's like, oh, I don't know. I mean, neither of us knew. It was the oddest thing. Well, when this stuff started to happen for me, where the symptoms of anxiety and fear, it was just a D-Day battle. Around that time on my radio show, I interviewed probably three or four different guys over the course of a couple of weeks who all had gone to prison because they committed either a white collar crime and they didn't know it or they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. As I'm interviewing these guys, I'm getting pricklies all over my body, like prickly fear. Like, you know, when you feel it in your physiology and I'm like, what in the world is this? And it got to the point where it just, I'm almost embarrassed to say it, but I wrote about it. So Mm -hmm. let's just go for it. But (laughs) I started to have these irrational fears that I was going to prison. Mm -hmm. I like, it didn't make any sense to me. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, I would drive 15 miles an hour into the speed limit and a person that you hate, you know, I like to go the speed limit. So, but I'm like, I was second guessing everything I did and talk about fear, a fear response. When you, you sabotage everything you do when you live in that kind of fear. I'm like, God, what is going on with me? And um, I actually did go to counseling during that time to try to sort it through, but God was up to something. And I started to fast. I was cutting things out of my life going, I am not leaving until you speak to me about this because this is crazy and it's an irrational fear. Where is it coming from? Well, one morning he brought to mind a memory that I had totally forgotten. So let me back up on my trauma. When I was about nine years old, some teenage boys pinned me down. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I was about 10 years old, I uh, was walking home from school and a different group of boys jumped me and beat me up really bad, pummeled me, mm-hmm. fists in their face and hair pulled out. And, and that was when I got it from that beating is when I first heard that lie, I can get to you anytime, anywhere. So you jump ahead. So here I'm that morning, I have a memory of, I think I was in high school maybe, but I saw a movie on TV, a true story of a girl who was, you know, a very good girl. And I was a pleaser and I, you know, whatever. And she had a friend who kind of deviated once in a while. And that friend tempted her to sneak out one night. And this girl got good grades, obeyed her parents, whatever. Well, they're at this party and by association, they got hauled into the station because they were using something, whatever. Well, the policeman calls the good girl's parents and says, let me keep her overnight just to teach her a lesson. And the mom's like, no way. And she's like, he's like, well, she's got more potential than most people. And this will scare scare out of her any inkling to ever deviate again. And so he talked her into it. Mm -hmm. So she said, okay, well, she went to get her the next morning, couldn't get her out through some weird paperwork saying, I think she was stuck there for weeks and she was beat and raped several times while in prison. It was a nightmare. As a young girl who had some similar trauma, watching, I did not know what to do with that. I didn't have, you know, back then there just wasn't, that's kind of things you talk about. And I, again, I stuffed it into my, you know, deep, deep level. And it was like, oh my word. And then there was another day I'm driving to work And I have this memory and I literally gasped and I'm like, how did I not remember this? But I had shoved it down and this is just what we do. But during my middle pregnancy, I was on bed rest for a few months. And every time I go in to stop labor, the nurses, I got to know them better. And one day, one of the nurses, when I was in there on IV, sat on my bed and she said, Susie, uh, pray that you don't get Dr. Butcher. Mm. And I'm like, is that his name? <laughs> and they're like, no, it's what we call him because he hates women. Jeez. And they said, he, um, you literally can pull the sheet back on a C-section and the cut is so jagged. Uh-huh. We will say, oh, you have Dr. So-and-so. And they're like, oh, how'd you guess? And uh, they would never say, but they tried to get him out. But nurses had no power over this mm-hmm. wicked doctor and he just was terrible to women. And I'm like, well, okay, I'll pray for that. Well, by the time I got in to deliver Luke, I had labored all night long for seven days. So I was in limbo labor. So I went all the way down to five minutes apart. I mean, it was a nightmare. So I was so exhausted by the time I got in there that my body couldn't commit. And uh, 
and we just were delirious with fatigue. And while the nurses were helping me, in comes this doctor, and it's him. And I didn't know it was him until he started barking at everybody. I'm 37 weeks. I'm ready to deliver. And he he's yells at the nurses to back up, and he pulls out this big, long needle. He's about to do an amnio with no ultrasound. And my husband says, aren't you going to do an ultrasound first? And he had no medical reason to do an ultrasound at 37 weeks. I was ready to deliver. Uh-huh. And he says to my husband, don't tell me how to do my job, pal. And he pokes the needle. He draws blood. And the baby's heart rate plummets. And all of a sudden, the sirens are going off. Nurses Uh come in the door. They plaster my arms down, you know, I'm oxygen mask and whatever. It was a nightmare. Well, after we got through that and got settled down, I still, I laid there for 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock, 6, 7, 8, 9, till middle of the night. And I'd already been laboring for a week. And the nurse kept going to this doctor going, break her water. That girl is not, you, she's dying here, you, you know. And he was just, he. it's like he loved to see women suffer. I mean, that was just, he was terrible. Well, there was a point where he broke the water. And, no, the nurse did because she, I think, I don't know, she did. Anyway, within a half hour, I'm delivering. He came in close, just quick enough to catch the head and then delivered the baby. Well, I'm holding the baby and when... Kevin stepped out to um, tell family he did something that I'm not going to repeat, but it was horrific. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're never more vulnerable yeah. than when you've just delivered. Gee. And um, it was terrible. I'm so and, sorry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but my dad had cancer at the time. This was, you know, we had a baby. We had mm-hmm. bills. It was a, I was so exhausted from that. And Luke was born with blood coming out of his mouth. They determined mm-hmm. that the needle went right into his throat. Oh. And uh, it was just a ter- yeah. terrible delivery, traumatic situation. So six months uh, checkup, I go to my doctor. And he said, how'd the delivery go? And I had, again, I'd stuffed it down because, there were, you know, uh, we had a life and babies and it was just a terrible delivery. People didn't talk about things back then. You know, he's 30 years old. But all of a sudden my eyes got big and my eyes welled up with tears and I started to tell him and I could see the muscles in his jaw flex like he was livid. What I didn't know was that there are so many complaints about this doctor, but my story was the one once I told him and left, he said to the other people, there goes our lawsuit. Like, Mm -hmm. now this is it. But anyway, he was so protective of me. He got so angry, but he just held himself, but I could see it. And he said, go home, write every detail down, and get it into this office as soon as you can. I said, okay. Now, this was a day when everybody was suing everybody, Mm -hmm. and I couldn't bear to do it because there were opportunists everywhere, and it was nauseating. This was like in the 80s, late 80s. And uh, I didn't want anything to do with that. And if I never saw him again, I didn't. I just was like, I did my letter and that was it. Six years later, I'm coming home from a fitness class that I'd taught. And there's a voicemail from the local news saying, we are uh, investigating Dr. So-and-so. He allegedly raped a patient. So she'd, well, the alleged case was that this gal was looked like she was probably promiscuous. She went in for her six-week uh, checkup after a baby, but she had short shorts and high heels, whatever. He allegedly followed her out to her car and raped her and said that she was trash and nobody would ever listen. So mm-hmm. she drove straight to the police office mm-hmm. and reported him, and it opened up this major investigation. So that that's what I found out later. But this news channel is like, we're investigating this doctor for allegedly doing this. We understand that you had a case with or an issue with him as well. We'd like to oh, talk man. with you. And the very next voicemail was the attorney general's office. Um, you're going to hear from the media. You're instructed not to talk to them. We've subpoenaed your records. Meet us at your clinic. And, you know, I mean, here's, I, you know, I show up to this clinic that I love everybody there, minus him, and they flash their badge. They pull my file. I hadn't seen it in six years. And they brought me into a room and said, tell us what happened. I told them and they said, 
this is verbatim what you wrote six years ago. And I said, yeah, because that's what happened. And they said, you'll be a credible witness. And I'm like, mm. witness? Mm-hmm. And the American Medical Association was investigating their own, which they have to go bend over backwards to do that if they're ever going to remove a license from a doctor. Well, I was on a stand to testify against him. but that And he had a bully lawyer. I still did a good job. But it was like I left a part of myself there. I mean, when you're treated like you're the problem for saying there's a problem, yeah. there's a problem, you know. Yeah. And uh, How many people right now, even with the Me Too movement, are feeling re-victimized by speaking up? Oh, my yeah. goodness, exactly. Yeah. And, and I was a young mom. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't have, I mean, I remember walking away from that, Julie, and we never talked about it again. Never mm-hmm. talked about it mm-hmm. again. And what? That's 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so here I'm in this flare-up going, why am I afraid to go to prison? You know, what, what is this f- irrational fear that I'm having? And why do I see myself on a stand? Well, you know what? The enemy remembered. My body remembered. You know, my memories even remembered. I just didn't remember. It's like, it's not like I'd, I, I just stuffed it so far that I, it was, it's like if someone would have said, can you, do you know why you're on a stand? I'm like, I couldn't have told you, yeah. but it was stuffed down that far. But when it came up, suddenly I knew, and I called some prayer mentors over, they're just godly women. And they got with the Lord with me and we just prayed through that. And there was a point toward the end of the prayer time where one of them said, uh, Jesus, is Susie on trial here? Mm. Will you show her? Is she on trial? And uh, Oh, this picture, I'll never forget. I just, I saw this picture instantly of me sitting on trial and Jesus walking through the courtroom and opening up that gate, taking me by the hand and stepping me down and in front of this big crowd going, she's not on trial here and pointing me to sit down. And he went and he sat in my spot Mm. and he said, I'm the defense, all the defense she'll ever need. And the the shame went away. Mm. I mean, it was like, I can't explain it, but the, the screenshot of being on the stand went away. I mean, it was, you know, it was amazing. And as I've shared some of those stories across the table from women, they gasp because they have their own story of a teacher, you know, who touched them on their backside and knew what he was doing, and mm-hmm. she couldn't tell anybody. But it affects you. It affects your soul. It affects your physiology. And we feel like if we talk about those things, they'll eat us alive. But the thing is, the enemy is threatening exposure. I say this in the book, and I believe it with everything in me. His threat to you is very connected to your threat to him. Mm-hmm. He doesn't want exposure. That's why he's threatening that this thing will swallow you whole, because he will lose real estate in your life. And as you expose this thing and you talk about it, you're going to heal. You know, and As you heal, the enemy will lose his power over you. And I'm not saying talk to just anybody. I think I'm, I'm praying for Christian counselors these days because people are in trauma. People have a lot of buried stuff, and it's surfacing now. It might not be sexual trauma. It could be something altogether different. You know, you know this is the—you're the expert, but I hear there's two kinds of trauma. Trauma that actually happens to you in the absence of things that should have happened for you mm-hmm. is still traumatic. Mm-hmm. I feel—why I feel so passionate about the message of the book is I think— that the body of Christ has lived with a low-grade fever, you know, walking with a limp, so to speak, in places that God can heal, that God wants to heal and restore. And 
we are numbing out in the same way the rest of the world is. But if we can kind of feel it so we can heal it and we can let God get into those places, we'll actually get a countenance of joy back. We'll get a spring in our step. And then people will actually ask us about the hope that's within us. We're such a shaking our fist kind of people and we, we're so no different from anybody else right now. Nobody's asking about the hope that's in us. But if someone who knew us when sees us now and says, you used to be this, but now you're so bold or courageous or happy or grounded, you seem comfortable in your own skin. To me, that's shalom. That's God saying, I'm pulling out this stuff. I'm putting life in you. I'm going to heal you and you're going to be comfortable in your story. I am not the same person after this relapse. I did not want to go through this. I can't tell you how bad. I did not want to go around this mountain again, but who God is and what he's done, I will forever be grateful. I know him better now. I know his word and I have a fire in my bones to see people healed and restored. And it looks different on all of us, but I know this. We have a God who wants to restore us. He wants us well. He does. Well, friend, it seems fair to say that nothing we experience just happens in a void. What we go through physically and emotionally, we also experience spiritually. And the traumas we go through, whether those were things that happened to us or things that didn't but should have happened, you know, all these traumas leave their mark. If you, like Susie, have wrestled with some health issues over the years, I hope that this episode has inspired you to look at how maybe some of the traumas you've experienced might be impacting you physically. And if you're struggling with some irrational or confusing feelings or thoughts, they may be tied to something in your past. I encourage you to find somebody who is a trusted therapist or counselor that can help you think through what might be triggering you so that you can really heal. We link to the book that Susie wrote called Fully Alive in our show notes, along with a link to her website and some additional resources we think will be helpful. You know, we are complicated beings, multifaceted, integrated, and healing is often that way too. I hope that as you look through some of our resources, you begin to experience healing and refreshment from the Lord. Well, friend, that's all I have for you, but I want to thank you for joining me, and I'll see you on Monday for our next Java with Julie episode. 